rise to read our sermon text this morning. You can turn in your Bibles. I do hope you have one to Psalm 123. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be a chairback Bible nearby you, even in front of you. You can find this morning's text on page 517. It's about a month ago that we began a series of studies through what are commonly referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, these psalms, as best we understand, the pilgrims of old would sing on their way up to Jerusalem for feasts throughout the year. And we come this morning to the four verses of Psalm 123, so let me read those verses for us and and pray that God would bless our study and we'll begin then together. So listen now as God speaks to you through His Word. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, we know that apart from you, mercy might not be found. Apart from your Son and his tender mercy towards us, we might be left in our misery. So I'll raise our affections and attention this morning that we might look upon your Son, that we might find mercy in him. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. As I'm sure you've noticed as you've gone to your mailbox in recent days and weeks, the Christmas card season is upon us. Uh, Surely, if your mailbox is anything like ours, every day or so brings these Christmas cards from friends and family members wishing us, of course, season's greetings and and joy to the world. And if you've ever uh, sat through such a photo shoot before, a photography session for a Christmas card, you know what tends to happen after that session is that the photographer will give you a laundry list of photographs to choose from. And most of them you will throw out as potential possibilities on a Christmas card quite quickly. Because you know that just a face doesn't look right. A smile looks forced. Everyone, yes, in your family might be smiling, but none of it actually looks natural. And then if you have ever paid attention to such things before, you might know that there is something on your face that reveals the genuineness, the sincerity of the smile. It's the eyes, isn't it? That what the bottom half of your face is doing needs to match the top half of your face. Otherwise, it seems altogether forced and fake. So much of... Capturing the true emotion is found, isn't it, in what the eyes are doing. And someone has called the Psalms before the soul's anatomy. But it's not just an anatomy of the soul. What you need to know about the book of Psalms, it's also a physiology of the soul. Because as you work your way through the Psalter, what you find is that God is telling us through his inspired psalmists of old, what it means to worship the Lord as embodied beings. You know, what we do, clap our hands, stomp our feet, dance around, prostrate ourselves before him in prayer. But perhaps the 
the true physiology of the soul is what we see in our text this morning. It's all found in looking. What the eyes of faith do. To whom the eyes of faith look. So if you've been with us in the three previous studies in the Psalms of Ascent, you might remember how the spiritual sequence went. We found ourselves in Psalm 120 with the psalmist there in great despair and going through incredible war and conflict. And then came to Psalm 121 and it was there that the psalmist was casting his eyes upon the hill in the midst of these dangers and difficulties from where does his help come, where does our help come, but from the Lord who is our keeper. And then we noticed last week in Psalm 122, coming from the pen of King David, uh, there was praise, there was gladness, there was joy uh, pouring forth from his prayer because finally, at long last, feet were in Jerusalem, that they were worshiping in the Lord's house. And so if you were reading the Psalms sequentially, last week in Psalm 122, the joy of Jerusalem was found, you might think that when you get to Psalm 123, the next psalm in this pocketbook of prayers and songs that pilgrims of old would sing and would pray, it might be yet another elaboration, exploration of what joy in Jerusalem looked like. But, of course, as we just read, you'll see that the soul is immediately cast back into a degree of difficulty, danger, and despair. And I hope it's encouraging to you to recognize that even what you get in the Psalms of Ascent is something like just the Christian life in miniature, because it's often true, isn't it? That you set out in an ordinary week going through hardship, highs and lows, valleys and hills. You need the Lord's help. You need to know His keeping power, and then you finally find rest on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. But then what happens? Monday comes, and it feels as though you're starting all over again. And so this is a psalm that's about looking in the midst of misery. It's about looking in the midst of hardship and difficulty, suffering and scorn. And so simply a theme that's given to us in these four verses about looking for mercy. And I want you to see three things from this psalm about that look of faith. First, to whom we look. Second, how we look. And then thirdly, why we look. To whom we look, verse 1, notice how it begins. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So you see, students, that the text doesn't tell us the name of the person to whom the psalmist looks. It's just, to you I look. But if you glance down, of course, at verse 3, we find out quickly enough that the person to whom the psalmist looks is none other than Yahweh, a covenant-making, a covenant-keeping God of Israel, one who's described here in verse 1 as the one enthroned in the heavens. And even just that simple sentence, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, tells us at least two truths about who Yahweh is towards his people. The first is that he is the king. Because kids, who sits on a throne but a ruler, a monarch, a king? It's why even the Psalms often talk about just the Lord's enthroned power and strength and majesty. Psalm 29 verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. To whom is the psalmist looking? 
the king who's enthroned in the heavens. But verse 1 also tells us it's not just he's looking to the king, but he's looking to the one who's in control. For he's enthroned in the heavens. He's exalted. He's high and lifted up. He's beyond every god, every power, every authority in this world. That's why, for example, Psalm 115 verse 13 says, Our Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So the one to whom you look for mercy is a sovereign king. My kids, I hope you know what sovereignty means. There are a few words in Scripture that can so change your life if you grasp the fullness of what sovereignty means. That God is in control of everything and everyone to bring about every one of His purposes, every one of His promises, make sure that they come to pass. It tells us there's no such thing as maverick molecules in the universe, autonomous animals, independent individuals. Everyone is subject to a sovereign Lord. That's really good news, isn't it? When you go through hardship and suffering, because the one to whom you look has all power, has all strength, has all wisdom to answer according to your needs. So notice again, even the direction of the look according to verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes. Naturally, of course, if God is in the heavens, we we look up. Uh, But students, you might know how easy it is often in the Christian life to always just look down, look sideways. There's this story in the second part of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where he talks about the man with a muckrake. It's this man who's picture one in essentially a barn. He's got this rake and he's always just raking filth and and trash and useless things to himself. Always looking down when there's this golden crown above his head if he would only but look up. And maybe you're in a season of difficulty and, and hardship and you feel as though you can't find mercy Maybe it's because all you're only doing is looking down. You're not looking up to the king who is in control, seated above in the throne of the universe. He's the one to whom we look, but how do we look? How do we look? Verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God. I trust even though the analogy, the simile, the metaphor that the psalmist uses here isn't relevant in our context, certainly in this country today, it still makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, You can picture a servant of old against a wall in the king's castle, off there in the shadows, always ready and willing to serve at a moment's notice, looking at the hand of his lord, just wondering if a little motion with the fingers, a little wave of the hand gives directions as to what service must be performed next or perhaps it's a mistress in the room of or a maidservant in the room of her mistress at the same time just always looking for a nod, a glance, some sort of movement that says here's the duty that I need you to perform. But actually the metaphor the psalmist is using is not thinking about directions related to work as much as it's looking for relief. Because you might know in the ancient world that servants, they had no rights. Someone wronged you, an injustice was committed against you. You had no rights, no status, no power to stand before a court of law, no one to defend or plead your case. All you could do is look to your master, look to your mistress, and hope for mercy from them. Which is the point, notice the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. 
There's a story told of General Napoleon when he was at the height of his power. He was a military tactician of some great strategy, but also a very stern leader. He knew how to keep order in the ranks. And one of the things that he did, because men would run away, men would desert their post, he had this essentially investigative crew that would go and find these runaways and round up the deserters. And whenever they would be brought in, they would be paraded before the people, the soldiers in the camp, and then they would be summarily executed uh, the following morning. And one such raid came back with such runaways that included at one time Napoleon's cook's son. And so that night, as these men were facing down certain execution in the morning, Napoleon's cook's wife came to Napoleon and pled for mercy. And Napoleon, as he was prone to do, this small little general said, he doesn't deserve mercy. He deserves death. And this boy's mother said, yes, but it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. And such was her response and its impressive power to Napoleon that he just pardoned the man unconditionally in that moment. Do you know what mercy is? Undeserved favor from a God who stoops down to his people. Even the word here that's used in the original for mercy has this connotation of stooping down in pity, stooping down in compassion, stooping down with undeserved grace. Now, kids, maybe a simple way to think about mercy is God's goodness in your misery. It's different than grace, although they're very close, depending on your translation that you have in front of you. It actually might say grace here in verse 2. But properly speaking, mercy is really God's goodness applied to your misery and and grace is God's goodness applied uh, to your guilt. As servants look to their master, that's how we look to the Lord for mercy. And then verse 3 and 4 tell us not just to whom we look and how we should look, but why. But why we should look. You know, it is interesting, isn't it, that sometimes you, you can come across a person and they need not say anything by way of a petition or a prayer, and the eyes communicate uh, everything that you, you need to know. And so we actually had this experience in our home this morning, getting ready for church, and kids were finishing their food, and uh, little Sarah had said she had finished her food, and we, we, we found out that she wasn't telling the truth. And so she was disciplined. And then I was getting ready in the bathroom, and then a few minutes later, I saw just a little face peek around the door. Tears coming down. So you as a father say, I forgive you. Because I didn't need any words to come from her, did I? I know what you want. Mercy from your father. What's interesting about this psalm is it tells us exactly why. He's looking for mercy. We don't have to wonder. Verse 3 tells us, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. You see, it's piling up the earnestness of the request, for we have had more than enough of contempt. As we often talk about when we study God's Word, you want to pay attention to pronouns. You see how it's moved into the first person plural in this text. Our eyes look upon our Lord. We have had more than enough of contempt. There's this interceding quality, isn't there, to uh, this prayer. And so, oh, what exactly is contempt? Kids, you know what it means to hold someone in contempt. It's basically to treat someone as so irrelevant or inferior that you consider them utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. 
And the language of more than enough is actually the language in the original of saturation. So you need to think of the psalmist is essentially praying for God's people here. We have had it to the limit. We are up to the amount of our capacity with the contempt that we've experienced in the world. And, and maybe you know exactly what that feels like. It's not as though you go through seasons of scorn. You go through seasons of difficulty in such a way that eh, it maybe comes one week and then the difficulty seems to reside and not show up for many months. No, no, here it's the idea of every room we walk into, there's scorn. Every corner we turn, scorn greets us. Every time I open my lips, scorn arrives as well, which is why, notice verse 4, only further cements the more than enough nature of the difficulty. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So students, who are the ones at ease? Who are the proud in this passage? Well, in the Old Testament... Even in the Psalms, you'll find this often over and over. The ones who are always said to be the prideful, at ease people in the world are unbelievers who reject God and therefore reject his people. You can think, can't you, of many stories in the Old Testament where unbelievers, prideful and at ease, heaped scorn and contempt upon God's people. Uh, what you need to know, once again, from these Psalms of Ascent, what the Lord is telling us is that life in Jesus Christ is one that's going to be difficult as the world thinks about what we confess to be true, how we desire to live. Isn't it true that Jesus said and told his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm treated as the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. Don't be surprised when the world scorns you holds you in contempt. Uh, I suppose we even got yet another sense of that this week. If you had eyes to see and reading the reports in certain ways that as arguments are made for the right to life of little children in the womb, the unbelieving world heaping such scorn, such contempt upon Christian convictions related to abortion. Or perhaps you know that persecuted brothers and sisters around the world living in contexts where all they know outside their homes and outside their church gatherings is scorn and contempt. So who will you look to for mercy? A king who's in control. How will you look to such a king? Well, like a servant looks to a master. Why will you do it? Because you've had more than enough. You can't take it any longer. And only he can provide that rest, that relief, that mercy for your misery. A few weeks ago, I was speaking with someone in my life that wants to be saved. It's always a good conversation to have, isn't it? And this individual is asking, well, what must I do to be saved? Much like people would come to apostles of old, think of Acts chapter 16. What must we do to be saved? And as sometimes happens in such conversations, you just seem to make no headway. Yeah, but what must I do? Well, you don't have to do anything. Well, no, what must I do? And wasn't getting anywhere. So I said, well, you, you need only look. Yeah, but what must I do? And so I just began to tell a story of how an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon was converted and I said, I need you to think about this 15-year-old man in January of 1850. 18-year-old boy, really. 
It's January of 1850, and a snowstorm strikes as he's walking on the Lord's Day morning to the place of his normal gathered worship. And because of the snowstorm, he's diverted from his normal place of worship, and he walks into a primitive Methodist chapel. And because of the snowstorm, only 12, maybe 15 people are present in the church that day. Such was the snowstorm that it even drove away the ordinary minister. And so this simple-minded, thin-looking man, just an ordinary member of the church, he rose up to preach at this primitive Methodist chapel in January of 1850. And he took it as text that morning, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. Spurgeon recounts this story in his autobiography in a way that only Spurgeon can. And he says, well, this simple-minded man, he spun forth all that he could for 10 minutes and found himself out of things to talk about. And so then he looked out across the pulpit at me in the gallery and he said, young man, you look miserable. Spurgeon says, I was not accustomed to having my appearance mentioned in a sermon before. <laughs> but he says, quote, it struck a good blow. They said, young man, you will be miserable if you don't obey my text. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins in a way that even sometimes ordinary church members can. Empowered by the Spirit, wax eloquent. Anyone can look. You don't have to do anything. You need only look. And they cried out three times, look, look, look. And you will be saved. And Spurgeon said, the light shone through in that very moment. The power of looking and only looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that kind of physiology of the soul is all a, this psalm is about, isn't it? Four verses that are also simple. But do yield a wealth of truth if we have a heart to meditate deeply enough on it. Looking to the Lord for mercy. So as we begin to close, let me help you notice a couple of things about this particular look in addition to what we mentioned. Number one, look for mercy with diligence. With diligence. Uh, a glance again at the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Uh, that word till, there, there's a lot in that word, isn't there? Until you have mercy I will keep my eyes, my gaze, my heart fixed upon you. Sometimes you might feel as though you've been looking for minutes and the Lord's mercy comforts you. And that's a kindness of the Lord, isn't it? But maybe he wants you to look for more than minutes. Maybe he wants you to look for months. Maybe he wants you to be like Jacob who all night long wrestled with the angel saying, I won't let you go until you bless me. Or like the Apostle Peter comes out walking on the water and his eyes are fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and everything is fine, but the minute what? He looks off. He begins to sink. Sometimes do you ever wonder that the Lord might have brought you the scorn and contempt, the suffering and the affliction, so that you learn the lesson of diligence in waiting on the Lord? Perhaps he hasn't answered immediately like you so desperately want him to, so that you learn that you must keep your eyes fixed on him and him alone. Which of course leads to the second point, summary truth. Not only are we to look for mercy with diligence, but look for mercy with dependence. It's striking here, isn't it? It says only to the Lord, the sovereign king, to Yahweh himself, 
that the psalmist is looking. There's no look to family members. There's no look to friends, evidently. There's not even a look to the church. There's not a look to worldly powers or, or princes because, of course, uh, true mercy can only be found in one place. That you're utterly dependent upon the Lord who is himself merciful. So the good news is that when you come to a text like this, you don't come to a ruler like Napoleon who needs to be persuaded to offer mercy. Uh, You come to a God who himself is mercy. He delights to do this. It's because that's who he is. And perhaps vitally at the very end, you see that this is who his son is for you in Jesus Christ. Because yes, you might be in here today and you know scorn. You know contempt. You know what it means to walk into a room and someone's just going to look at you in the eyes for the next hour with heat and hellfire. That's a difficult place to come into such a location. But do you also know that you've scorned others? That you've held others in contempt? You know, kids, maybe even just yesterday, you scorned your sibling, held someone in your school this week in contempt So the truth of the Christian life, the truth, frankly, of every person's life is there's a day coming, isn't there, when we'll all be summoned to the bar of God's courtroom to give it an account for everything that we've ever said, everything that we've ever done, and everything that we've ever said and everything that we've ever done should lead the Lord to hold us in the contempt of hell for all eternity. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he doesn't do that, that he bestows mercy upon scorning Sinners like us. Why? Because Jesus Christ is mercy enfleshed. That's why when you come to the Christmas stories of Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, particularly pay attention to the prayers, these psalms and songs that belong to young Mary and, and old Zechariah. Old Zechariah, who of course, the dad of John the Baptist. It's old Zechariah that prophesies at the end of Luke chapter 1 that when this Messiah arrives, quote, the tender mercy of God will have visited us from on high. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is that he is God's tender mercy. That yes, we look up to him with the eyes of faith, but at the same time we can look at him presently among us, within us with the eyes of faith, because by his spirit he's poured out his very fullness of mercy into your heart. Maybe you need mercy. I wonder where you will look today. You all need mercy. And so may you look to God's tender mercy In Jesus Christ, for he, of course, is the sovereign king to whom we wait and watch, upon whom we wait and watch, with diligence and dependence. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would show us your mercy, that you would extend unto us the boundless and abundant grace and loving kindness that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lift up our gaze to where Jesus is, seated at your right hand, exalted in your presence and in your throne room, he who is our life. Uh, Do help us to know something of his mercy this day that we might find comfort. Help us know also something of his mercy that we might show it to others this week. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.